Hello. We're doing something different this time out because those 50-hour-plus weeks that go into each show can be a bit taxing. I need to take off the rest of September. However, instead of offering a repeat episode like many podcasts will do, I decided to share with listeners a sample of the bonus episodes all our $4 and up Patreon subscribers now hear each month. I hope you enjoy this uh, substitution, and if you do, that you might even consider joining us on Patreon to hear more of the same. We'll be back in October with a regular episode following up on our Gallows Lore show, as well as a special Halloween offering. And so till then, we have this. Welcome to our first exclusive Patreon episode, and uh, thank you all for your support. Uh, As I've mentioned in promoting this idea, this short episode will consist exclusively of readings from rare old books from the shelves of our library here. I'll be uh, picking and choosing from various volumes in an uh, utterly arbitrary fashion, beginning with our first volume, which we'll probably be hearing from for at least a couple of months, as it's uh, particularly rich in suitable content. It's a book from 1859 by eccentric encyclopedist Edmund Fillingham King called 10,000 Wonderful Things Comprising the Marvelous and Rare, Odd, Curious, Quaint, Eccentric, and Extraordinary in All Ages and Nations in Art, Nature, and Science. I'm borrowing a bit from that title as the title of this uh, bonus series, Marvelous and Rare. Antiquarian Circle. So, let's begin. Curious Law The following curious law was enacted during the reign of Richard I for the government of those going by sea to the Holy Land. He who kills a man on shipboard shall be bound to the dead body and thrown into the sea. If the man is killed on shore, the slayer shall be bound to the dead body and buried with it. He who shall draw his knife to strike another, or who shall have drawn blood from him, will lose his hand. If he shall have only struck with the palm of his hand without drawing blood, he shall be thrice ducked in the sea. And our uh, next... This references a sea captain's memoir quoted in the Gazette of Amsterdam, which says this particular event happened on October 12th, 1725. The wind being easterly, we had 30 fathoms of water, when at 10 o'clock in the morning, a sea monster like a man appeared near our ship, first on the port side, where the master was, whose name is William Lamond, and who took a grappling iron to pull him up. But our captain, named Oliver Morin, hindered him, being afraid that the monster would drag him away into the sea. The said Lamond struck him on the back to make him turn around, that he might view him better. The monster, being struck, showed his face, having his two hands closed, as if he had expressed some anger. Afterwards, he went round the ship. When he was at the stern, 
He took hold of the helm with both hands, and we were obliged to make it fast, lest he should damage it. From thence he proceeded to the starboard, swimming still as men do. When he came to the forepart of the ship, he viewed for some time the figure that was on our prow, which represented a beautiful woman. And then he rose out of the water as if he had been willing to catch that figure. All this happened in the sight of the whole crew. Afterwards he came again to the port side, where they presented him a codfish hanging down with a rope. He handled it without spoiling it, and then removed the length of cable and came again to the stern, where he took hold of the helm a second time. At that very moment Captain Morin got a harping iron ready, and took it himself to strike him with it. But the cordage being entangled, he missed his aim, and the harping iron only touched the monster, who turned about, showing his face as he had done before. Afterwards he came again to the forepart, and viewed again the figure on our prow. The mate called for the harping iron, but he was frightened, fancying that this monster was a seaman who'd killed himself on the ship the year before, and had been thrown into the sea in the same passage. He was contented to push his back with the harping iron, and then the monster showed his face as he had done at other times. He came again immediately near our boat, and rising out of the water to the navel, we observed that his breast was as large as that of a woman of the best plight. He turned upon his back and appeared to be a male. Afterwards he swam around the ship, then went away, and we have never seen him since. I believe that from ten o'clock till twelve this monster was along our board. If the crew had not been frightened, he might have been taken many times with the hand, being only two feet distant. That monster is about eight feet long, his skin is brown and tawny without any scales, all his motions are like those of men. The eyes have a proportional size, a little mouth, a large and flat nose, very white teeth, black hair, the chin covered with a mossy beard, a sort of whiskers under the nose, and ears like those of men, fins between the fingers of his hands, and feet like those of a duck. In a word, he is a well-shaped man. All this certified to be true by Captain Oliver Morin and John Martin, pilot, and by the whole crew consisting of two and thirty men. And our next... Alexander Selkirk and the Dancing Goats. The adventures of Alexander Selkirk, an English sailor who was left alone on the island of Juan Fernandez, are very wonderful. This extraordinary man sought to beguile his solitude by rearing kids, and he would often sing to them and dance with this motley group around him. His clothes having worn out, he dressed himself in garments made from the skins of such as run wild about the island. These he sewed together with thongs of the same material. His only needle was a long slender nail, and when his knife was no longer available, he made an admirable substitute from an iron hoop that was cast ashore. Upon the wonderful sojourn of this man, Defoe founded his exquisite tale of Robinson Crusoe, a narrative more extensively read and better known than perhaps any other ever written. And now we have Jacob Bobbert 
A curious anecdote of Jacob Bobbert, keeper of the Physic Garden at Oxford, that is, the Garden of Medicinal Plants, he made a dead rat resemble the common image of the dragons by altering its head and tail and thrusting in tapered sharp sticks which distended the skin on each side till it resembled wings. He let it dry as hard as possible. The learned immediately pronounced it a dragon, and one of them sent an accurate description of it to Dr. Maliabeci, librarian of the Grand Duke of Tuscany. Several fine copies of verse are written on so rare a subject, but at last Mr. Bobbert owned to the cheat. However, it was looked upon as a masterpiece of the art, and as such, deposited in the museum. Blind Jack. The streets of London, in the reigns of Queen Anne and George I and II, were infested with all sorts of paupers, vagabonds, impostors, and common adventurers, and many who might otherwise be considered real objects of charity, by their disgusting manners, general appearance in public places, rather merited the interference of the parish beadles and the discipline of Bridewell rather than the countenance and encouragement of such persons as mostly congregated around common street exhibitions. One-Eyed Granny and Blind Jack were particular nuisances to the neighborhoods in which the first practiced her mad drunk gambles and the latter his beastly manner of performing on the flageolet, that's a type of flute, uh, John Kyling, alias Blind Jack, having the misfortune to lose his sight, thought of a strange method to ensure himself a livelihood. He was constitutionally a hale, robust fellow, without any complaint saving blindness, and having learnt to play a little on the flageolet, he conceived a notion that, by performing on that instrument in a different way to that generally practiced, he should render himself more noticed by the public and be able to levy larger contributions on their pockets. The manner of Blind Jack's playing the flageolet was by obtruding the mouthpiece of the instrument up one of his nostrils, and by long custom he would produce as much wind as many others with their lips into the pipe, but the continued contortions and gesticulations of his muscles and countenance rendered him an object of derision and disgust as much as that of charity and commiseration. And uh, now we have another one that mentions two of the early church fathers, Tertullian and Clemens of Alexandria. It's called Two of the Fathers of False Hair. Tertullian says... If you will not fling away your false hair as hateful to heaven, cannot I make it hateful to yourselves by reminding you that the false hair you wear may have come not only from a criminal, but from a very dirty head, perhaps from the head of one already damned. This was a very hard hit indeed, but it was not nearly so clever a stroke at wigs as that dealt by Clements of Alexandria. The latter informed the astounded wig-wearers when they knelt at church to receive the blessing that they must be good enough to recollect that the benediction remained on the wig and did not pass through to the wearer. This was a stumbling block to the people, many of whom, however, retained the wig and took their chance as to the percolating through it of the benediction. And uh, now we have... Uh, 
An old gander. Willoughby states in his work on ornithology that a friend of his possessed a gander 80 years of age, which, in the end, became so ferocious that they were forced to kill it, in consequence of the havoc it committed in the barnyard. He also talks of a swan three centuries old, and of several celebrated parrots said to have attained from 100 to 150 years. And... uh... It's uh, Extraordinary Sleeper. M. Brady, physician to Prince Charles of Lorraine, gives the following particulars of an extraordinary sleeper. A woman named Elizabeth Alton, of a healthy, strong constitution, who had been a servant to the curate of St. Julian near the town of Mont about the beginning of the year 1738, when she was about 36 years of age, grew extremely restless and, in the month of August, in the same year, she fell into a sleep which held four days, notwithstanding all possible endeavors to awaken her. At length, she awoke naturally, but became more restless and uneasy than before. For six or seven days, however, she resumed her usual employments, until she fell asleep again, which continued eighteen hours. From that time, to the year 1753, which is 15 years, she fell asleep daily about 3 o'clock in the morning without waking until about 8 or 9 at night. In 1754, indeed, her sleep returned to its natural period for four months, and in 1748, a bout of malaria prevented her sleeping for three weeks. On February 20th, 1755, M. Brady, with a surgeon, went to see her. About five o'clock in the evening, they found her pulse extremely regular. On taking hold of her arm, it was so rigid that it was not to be bent without much trouble. They then attempted to lift up her head, but her neck and back were as stiff as her arms. He hallowed in her ear as loud as his voice could reach. He thrust a needle into her flesh up to the bone. He put a piece of rag to her nose, flaming with spirits of wine, and let it burn some time yet all without being able to disturb her in the least. At length, in about six hours and a half, her limbs began to relax. In eight hours, she turned herself in the bed, and then suddenly raised herself up, sat down by the fire, ate heartily, and began to spin. At other times, they whipped her till the blood came. They rubbed her back with honey and then exposed it to the stings of bees. They thrust nails under her fingernails, and it seems these experimenters consulted more the gratifying their own curiosity than the recovery of the unhappy object of the malady. And uh, now we have... A Happy Family A gentleman traveling through Mecklenburg some years since witnessed a singular association of incongruous animals. After dinner, the landlord of the inn placed on the floor a large dish of soup and gave a loud whistle. Immediately there came into the room a mastiff, an angora cat, an old raven, and a remarkably large rat with a bell around its neck. They all four went to the dish and, without disturbing each other, fed together after which the dog, cat, and rat lay before the fire, while the raven hopped about the room. 
a few more. We have a false find. At Falmouth some years ago, the sexton found coal in digging a grave. He concluded it must be a mine and ran with the news and the specimen to the clergyman. The surgeon explained that they had stolen a French prisoner who died and filled his coffin with coal that the bearers might not discover its emptiness. And I'm assuming that body would have been stolen for anatomical research. Okay, and now we have uh, Coffee House Attractions in 1760. The great attraction of Don Saltero's Coffee House was its collection of rarities, a catalogue of which was published as a guide to the visitors. It comprehends almost every description of curiosity, natural and artificial. This is a quote. Tiger's tusks, the Pope's candle, the skeleton of a guinea pig, a flycap monkey, a piece of the true cross, the four evangelists' portraits cut on a cherry stone, the King of Morocco's tobacco pipe, Mary Queen of Scots pincushion, Queen Elizabeth's prayer book, a pair of nun stockings, Job's ears, which grew in a tree, and 500 more odd relics. The Don had a rival, it appears, by a catalog of the rarities to be seen at Adams at the Royal Swan in Kingsland Road, leading from Shoreditch Church, 1756. Mr. Adams exhibited for the entertainment of the curious Miss Jenny Cameron's shoes, Adams' eldest daughter's hat. I don't know if that's Adam the owner or Adam of the Garden of Paradise. The heart of the famous Bess Adams that was hanged at Tyburn with lawyer Carr January 18, 1736. Sir Walter Raleigh's tobacco pipe, Vicar of Bray's clogs, an engine to shell green peas with, teeth that grew in a fish's belly, blackjack's ribs, the very comb that Abraham combed his son Isaac and Jacob's heads with, what Tyler's spurs, rope that cured Captain Lowry of the headache, earache, toothache, and bellyache, Adam's key of the fore and back door of the Garden of Eden, etc., etc. These are only a few out of 500 other equally marvelous items. And now, finally, I'm going to read one more. Swallowing Lizards Bertolin, the learned Swedish doctor, relates strange anecdotes of lizards, toads, and frogs, stating that a woman, 30 years of age, being thirsty, drank plentifully of water at a pond. At the end of a few months, she experienced singular movements in her stomach, as if something were crawling up and down, and, alarmed by the sensation, consulted a medical man who prescribed a dose of orviatin. That's a, a poison remedy. Shortly afterwards, the irritation of the stomach increasing, she vomited three toads and two young lizards, after which she became more at ease. In the spring following, however, her irritation of the stomach was renewed, and further remedies being administered, she vomited three female frogs, followed the next day by their numerous progeny. In the month of January following, she vomited five more living frogs, and in the course of seven years ejected as many as eighty. Dr. Betterling states that he heard these same animals croaking within her. 
So that will be the final tasty tidbit for our first antiquarian circle. And though we are done with our readings, I do have one more item to share. The library here houses not only books, but also recordings uh, with uh, rare music on 33s and 78s and even a few old uh, cylinder recordings. So we'll be closing each episode with an offering from this collection. This one's uh, from British songwriter, comedian, and early radio personality, Leslie Cerrone. I'll leave you with this charming number written by Mr. Cerrone in 1934 called Why Build a Wall Round a Graveyard? Build a wall round the graveyard when nobody wants 